Let's go ahead and get started. We have a soundtrack today. We're going to jazz it up a little bit. Uh, they can't cordon off the sound from the restaurant. And so they're having, yeah, definitely I don't turn down some, but they're having a function right next door. So if you're watching on the video, there's jazz in the background. And you may be able to hear it through. But just in case, I'm going to record audio as well so that the, at least the podcast can be uh, big fan free. We are, uh, we're in Leviticus 11. Last week, uh, oh, by the way, those of you who didn't get introduced, my mom's here today. She's visiting for the week. Tried to have dad come visit too, but he couldn't get away from church stuff. Uh, but half of why I am who I am and as messed up as I am, <laughs> you can take it up with her. So last week, chapter, we started, we didn't actually get into chapter 11, we did an introduction to Israel and their food laws. And it's important, we talked about last week some of the misconceptions people have about clean and unclean foods and the, the purpose behind them. And again, by way of review, God is going to address in this whole section between chapters 11 through 15 are going to be cleanliness and, and purity for Israel's daily life. He's already addressed uh, in the first 10 chapters the sanctuary's purity, how the sanctuary is purified, how the sacrifice is atoned, um, how all of the ritual that's going to be run Israel's day-to-day -day life <clears throat> within the sanctuary. Now it's focusing to the outside world. So now we're seeing how they're going to be as a people, collectively. And it's, it's, we looked at last week, we touched a little bit on, people go into Leviticus and they try to dissect and pull out these different laws and they try to say, well, this is the ones we keep today and these are the ones we don't keep today and, um, and without giving it much thought. But it doesn't really work that way. Leviticus is the holiness code for uh, God's people and it was all or nothing. The Israelites didn't pick and choose. This, these are all stipulations for being in covenant with God. So for Israel, it was all or nothing. So when the New Testament comes along, it's an entirely new epoch in salvation history. It's an entirely new age of religious history that we live in. So it's actually the wrong thing to go back to Leviticus and say, well, we keep this law, we keep this law, we don't keep this law, we don't keep this law. Because then that, what that means by default is you're saying, and we ignore this law, and we ignore this law, and we ignore this law. So it doesn't work that way. Rather, what we do is, as Christians who don't live under Levitical law, we go back to Leviticus and we say, this is the teaching that God gave Israel as a reflection of his holiness. And his holiness can be seen in this law and this law and this law. And uh, <clears throat> the principles that underline the laws that he gave continue to be valid, but many of them, if not most, have been transformed through the reality of Jesus. So through the appearance of Jesus, what was formerly hints and shadows has now become concrete reality and expanded. So when we look to Leviticus, we're seeing the law of God but we're seeing the law of God for his people under the Sinai Covenant. 
Now, it's important that we first do that step because what a lot of Christians have done and churches have by default taught us to do this is to say, that was all Old Testament, we don't keep those anymore, so let's just skim or skip through it and get to the New Testament. But hopefully through this study, as you've been coming, this has been coming for one, two, almost three years now, hopefully you're starting to see that it doesn't work that way. That rather it's the reverse. We, un we need to understand these laws in their original setting first. Then we can see how the New Testament transforms or, or uh, transfers the moral teaching of these laws into a setting where the laws themselves are no longer binding. It's a subtle distinction, but it is not a distinction without a difference. There is a major difference in it. And so a lot of the theology of the New Testament will be how do you read the Old Testament and, and apply the Old Testament in a New Testament setting. And the biblical authors don't always spell it out because they were all, except for maybe one of them, first century Jews who had grown up under the law. So for them, it was, yes, they're stepping out of the, the, the constraints of the old covenant law into the fuller and realer new covenant law. But for them, it wasn't a massive cultural shift. It was just a what we've, what we've grown up with. Now we're applying it in a new setting where all of a sudden Gentiles are allowed in. But most of us in here who aren't ethnically Jewish or raised Jewish come at it from the different direction. We come at it from those Gentiles who have been grafted in for whom these laws were never our laws. So for us, these laws are foreign, these laws are strange, and they don't make a lot of sense. So what we have to do is go back into and look at the laws and study the laws and meditate on the laws, not to keep the laws, but to appreciate and understand what God was teaching through those laws to Israel. This is a basic, it's called, it's called hermeneutics. The theology term for this is hermeneutics. The science of reading and applying scripture as a whole. But we don't, it's not taught a lot because it's hard work. Like you tell me, first I have to read the Old Testament, then I have to read the New Testament, then I have to see how they fit together. And who has time for all that? Well, God says that it requires work. It's, it's what we're supposed to do as believers. Um, and the more we dig, the more we study, the more rewarded we are spiritually, and the more things start to make sense. So when you're talking about Leviticus in a modern setting, you can appeal to Leviticus to make arguments for New Testament doctrine or New Testament ethics. You can do that. You just have to do it with nuance, like Paul and the author of Hebrews and Jesus himself did, not by quoting chapter and verse. So when it comes to things like we're going to get into later, especially in chapters 17 through 19, when it comes to things like uh, sexual purity and, and sexual ethics, the New Testament authors and the early church fathers all quoted from Leviticus to ground their sexual ethics. But they did it through the lens of Jesus, and they didn't do it as keep this law because God says keep this law. Rather, they did it as keep this law or, 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 or obey this ethic because this is the consistent ethic of the people of God throughout the centuries. And it's reflected here in Leviticus, for instance, in contrast to the Egyptians and the Canaanites. So a number of things can be seen by doing that. However, when it comes to things like food, or holidays that we have to practice, the, the Christians would cite, they would point to Leviticus, but they would point to it as particularly 
binding or, or, or embodying the covenant with Israel. And now that that covenant is no longer in practice, those things that were specifically tied to that covenant identity are no longer binding on God's people. But yet things that are deeper than that, like sexual ethics or basic care for the poor or all of those kind of things, they're deeper than that law that was given in Leviticus. And they go back before Mount Sinai. And so there is continuity there. So it's this delicate balance that we have to do when we're reading Leviticus and we're trying to figure out what does it mean for us as Christians today. It's, it's not always a straightforward thing of, of citing chapter and verse. And, you know, more than anything, as good an example as anything, is the issue of diet and the issue of foods. So, for instance, God says in chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, so he's speaking to both of them now, say to the Israelites, of the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal, and, and that term animal in the NIV is, this is where NIV's kind of got some stuff going on. That term animal is the term for cattle. Behemoth. That's where we get the word behemoth from. It's the Genesis term that was used to describe large, four-legged, grazing animals. So it says, uh, of all of these behemoth that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any cattle that has a split hoof completely divided and that chews the cud or brings up the cud, which is without getting into animal husbandry. Animals have four stomachs, they get grass, grass is hard to digest on the first go around, so they chew it, they swallow it, it goes in the first stomach compartment, nutrients are extracted, they bring it back up, they chew it some more to get more of the nutrients out of it, it goes into the second compartment. That's called chewing the cud or bringing up the cud in, in Hebrew. And so what God's saying is, of all the animals in the world that you encounter, these are the ones you can eat. The ones that do that and that have completely split hooves that are completely divided, all right? So, so in one stroke, God has kind of severely limited the land animals that Israel will consume on a regular basis for their diet. I mean, whittled it down extremely narrowly within this. And then even more, he goes on and now he says, there are some that only chew cut or only have a split hook, but you must not eat them. In other words, they have to have both of those qualities. The camel, for instance, um, Camels have toes, they don't have hooves. <laughs> camels have toes, as anybody that's ever used the term camel toe knows. <laughs> if you don't know the term, don't worry about it. But uh, camels have toes, not hooves. So, he said, there are some that only chew the cud, only have a split hoof, you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof, so it is ceremonially unclean for you. And this is the distinction. God's about these animals. God doesn't hate camels, and camels don't defile a person just by touching it. They rode camels. You can ride a camel. You can use a camel. You can, you know, drink the milk from a camel. You can, you can use its hide for your tents and all of this stuff. But you can't eat it. It is ceremonially unclean. All right. It's not. It doesn't say it's unhealthy. It doesn't say it tastes bad. It doesn't say any of those things. The reason for it is it is ceremonially unclean. You're, you're going to be a people that does not eat camel. Right? Now, now people eat camel now. Last, uh, two years ago when I was in Palestine, when we went to Hebron, uh, we went by a butcher shop, and there was the head and neck of a camel and all the bones and everything. It was just hanging there in the shop. You could buy it and eat it. Um, camels are edible animals, but for Israel, they 
to make your ceremonial unclean to eat it. You're not going to eat this animal. Then he goes on, the coney, which is like a type of rock badger or a little furry thing or something. Um, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. Now, conies and rabbits don't chew cud. We mentioned this last week. This is phenomenological language. The term is not biological or taxonomical. It's, it's basically, if you've ever seen rabbits, they always look like they're chewing. That's what they do. They chew their food and their mouth moves side to side. And so they were categorized in the ancient world as, well, those are chewers. And the term for that, the, the, the everyday figure of speech is chewing the cud. Great ones that bring up the cud. Even though that's not scientifically what they do. So when people try to debunk the Bible, it's unscientific, it's got errors, this and that. It says that rabbits chew cud. Yeah, in the same way that we say that was a pretty sunrise the morning, this morning, right? We don't literally mean that the sun rose. We know that we're the one moving. The sun is standing still, and it's us. But, but for us, it looks like a sunrise. So it's not backwards, unscientific, or false for us to say sunrise or sunset. It's just the English language. Hebrew language has the same thing. It's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. Uh, so anyway, rabbits, conies, those are off the menu. And, and anybody that's raised in Appalachia or in the south of America knows rabbits make good stew. Right? Rabbits is a good animal. Rabbits is eating animals. But for Israel, they were not. Again, nothing wrong with rabbits. God doesn't hate rabbits. But they were off limits for their menu. And then lastly, the pig. Though it has a split hoof, uh, completely divided, does not chew the cud. It's unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. So again, the pig now. Now, the pig is not an especially awful animal. It doesn't mean that God hates pigs. There's reasons people have tried to do because other religions also see the pig as impure. Even in the ancient world, other religions, many of them, they would sacrifice, when they'd sacrifice pigs, they were usually sacrificed to the gods of the underworld. So there's grave excavations where, or excavations of altars where dedicated to deities or demons of the underworld or the kind of the scary, and those would be who pigs were sacrificed to sometimes. But, you know, if you're growing up in French Polynesia or somewhere down in, you know, off Tahiti or somewhere where the only animals around are pigs, like, they don't have that same view of pigs. But in the ancient Near East, they did. Pigs were seen as dirty. They were seen as eating what the other animals wouldn't eat. They're, they could metabolize stuff that other animals wouldn't. And so they were kind of like the, the, the trash compactors of the ancient world. They were the disposal. And, they were, and so they had the reputation of being dirty. And when I go to India every year, we go to this place called Kapapur on Sea, and it's right down on the beach. And, and it's just in the morning, it's beautiful as the sun rises over the Bay of Bengal. And if you're standing on the beach, it's beautiful. And then you turn around, and there's like an inland wash where some of the water comes in. And it's also the town dump where people throw their garbage. And that's where the pigs live. And they're so dirty, and they're so disgusting. And they're just like, you know, like pigs, like making the pig noises. And they're, and they're just these little Indian, dark, black, gross pigs. They're disgusting. But I love bacon and pork chops. And there's nothing inherently more uh, unhealthy about pork that's improperly cooked than any other animal that's improperly cooked. I mean, there's all of these things that people have tried to put onto, like why we don't eat pork and this and that. And there's videos you can go on the internet where somebody pours Coca-Cola on a piece of pork and then worms come out of it. And, and it's like, this is why God said not to eat pork. Well, no, not in the Bible. 
The reason God said not to eat pork is the same reason he said not to eat rabbit. And it's the same reason he said not to eat camel. So that's important to realize. May there be some health benefit that we don't know about? Possibly. You know, are pork chops great for you? Maybe not. Is bacon good for you? Probably not. But that's not the reason that these laws are here. God didn't, if God wanted Israel to be healthy, and that was the primary reason for the laws, you would expect that to somewhere be mentioned in the text. So from God's perspective, these laws are given as part of the covenant for Israel's obedience to distinguish Israel from the surrounding peoples. Not everything the surrounding peoples did was evil. A lot of it was, and particularly when they get into their religious sexual practices in the next few chapters, there was a lot of evil in the surrounding cultures. But in terms of diet and things like that, not everything that surrounding cultures did was evil and sinful. But Israel was going to be distinct. God was making a differentiation. And just like in the animal kingdom, we saw what we talked about last week. God was showing Israel that the world can be divided. You have the whole animal kingdom. And then within that whole kingdom, you're going to have this set of animals that are edible. A small subset of animals that are edible. And within that subset of animals that are edible, you're going to have a tiny subset of animals that you can sacrifice, that are pleasing on the altar. So three realms that the animal world was separated into. Well, that's exactly mirrors what God was doing with Israel himself. You had all the nations of the world. Remember when God shows up to Peter to give him a vision to go to the Gentiles, what does he use to signify the Gentiles? unclean animals, all kinds of animals. So this is not a reading into the text. This is a this is a biblical, theological, fairly basic point. All the world, all the peoples of the earth, just like all the animals, within that subset of, or within that set of all the peoples of the earth, you have the specific people who are called out, and that's the people of Israel. And then within Israel, you have the very specific set of those who can minister at the altar, and that is the Levitical priesthood. So again, three categories of humanity reflecting the three distinctions within the animal kingdom. So this is all teaching Israel through object lessons their self-identity. And that's why food laws and what you ate had such a strong tie with who Israel was as a people. And that's why that for most of their history they would rather die than break these food laws. Because they saw this as, no, this is who I am. This is what it means to be an Israelite. Daniel and his three friends would say, no, we're not going to eat what the king wants us to eat, no matter what. Right? So the Maccabean martyrs, they would say, kill us if you want to, rip our tongues out, burn our bodies, do whatever you want, but we're not going to eat this food. So then think about it. Within the span of maybe 20 or 30 years, what would cause people right there in the heart of Judea where the Romans had been trying for centuries to get them to assimilate, to get them to abandon the faith of, uh, that they saw as just superstition, what would cause a group of those people right in the epicenter, in the heart of Jerusalem, to all of a sudden start teaching, yeah, actually, it's not the food that really is really unclean. It's, it's the actions that we do. And that distinction between clean and unclean animals no longer applies because the distinction between uh, Gentiles and Jews is no longer in effect through Jesus. What would cause that other than Jesus actually being who he said he was and and actually teaching what we have him teach taught in the New Testament? I mean it is literally was the that's why Paul spent so much time writing on the issue of food 
in his letter. He spends three chapters in Corinthians writing about what you can eat and what you can't eat. And a whole chapter in Romans on what you can eat and what you can't eat. And the whole book of Galatians. So there's a reason that it was such a big deal. And it's because it's tied to their identity. So anyway, let's, let's just buzz through the chapter so you can get an example. Those are the land animals. Remember, this is structured like the creation account in Genesis. It's structured like worship. So the animals created in Genesis, the animals on the land, animals in the air, animals in the waters. So that's the same thing. These kinds of animals, literally that term kind, is going to be used again like it was in Genesis. So he goes on to say, verse 9, of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, in other words, these are the waters, the swimmers, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all the creatures in the seas are streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to detest. Now that verb we talked about last week, detest, doesn't mean in English what we think of as like, this makes me want to vomit, oh, I just can't even be around. It's a specific, it's a technical term. And it means you are to avoid eating. You are to avoid eating. It doesn't mean if you're fishing and you step on a crab or a lobster or you have to, it doesn't mean all of a sudden you're just this awful, unclean person. It just means these aren't on the menu. These are not on the menu. So he says, all of it that doesn't have fins or scales. That's pretty easy to remember. So if it's swimming, it's got to have fins, it's got to have scales. So that basically, again, cuts the fish that they can eat all the way down to just what we would think of as normal fish. And leaves out the ones like bottom feeders, catfish, mollusks, shellfish, sharks, uh, you know, all of these kind of ant whales, all that kind of stuff. Those were off the venue for Israel. They were just to eat the, what we would consider normal fish. Then he goes to the air. Verse 13, these are the birds you are to detest and not eat because they are detestable. Shut, so flip the switch. Here's what you cannot eat. This is going to be the opposite now. Israel, it's going to be, here's what's not on the menu. The other two examples were, here's the ones you can eat. And he gives the classification. Now it's going to be, here's the ones you can't eat. Implying that the birds that aren't on this list, you can eat. So Israel's fowl diet, F-O-W-L, was a lot bigger than its diet of the other types of animals. But you can't eat these uh, because they are detestable. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, and any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of herod, of a parent, the hoopy and the bat. Now again, somebody's, oh, well bats aren't birds, they're mammals. Well yeah, but they fly, and that's what this is about, things that fly in the air. Again, it's not taxonomy, it's not biology, and we don't need to try to prove either of those things by appealing to scripture. The point is, these are the animals you're not going to eat. Now the, the terms for these animals are unclear, that's why if you have a translation that's not the NIV, some of those names would have been different. Basically, a lot of these animals aren't fully identifiable because we don't know what species they were. We don't even know if they're still around anymore. Some of these species could have been uh, driven to extinction or we just don't know. So these terms differ from, from translation to translation significantly. But the point of it is Israel knew these animals. They were the normal birds that they encountered. And the ones that are on the list, typically, most of them, the ones that are on this list of you shall not eat, 
most of them are predatory birds. Most of them are birds of prey that, that, that kill and eat other birds. And people who look at this list say that's the thing that most of them have in common. Or like bats, that they actually like drink blood. Uh, or, or, you know, that. So if you want to look at for the rationale of some of these, that may have something to do with it, is that these animals are all kind of, these are the birds that are all somewhat seen, possibly, because again, their identification isn't 100%, as, as, as predatory. And so the land animals, Israel wasn't allowed to eat predatory land animals. They were limited to the, the livestock, and even within that sort of set. And so uh, when it comes to the birds, there's someone said, well, that's probably the case as well. They're there to avoid those kind owls and you know the birds that hunt at night. So what's on the menu? Everything else. You know, chickens, turkeys. I mean, they didn't have those over in that part of the world, but the equivalent: pheasants, quail, doves. Those are the kinds of things that they were allowed to eat. So then, lastly, he's going to address the other things that fly and that swarm. The creation categories. Uh, all flying insects that walk on all fours are to be detestable to you. Again. Insects have six legs, not four. Duh. The Bible, biblical authors knew that grasshoppers had six legs. They could pick them up, they could count just like anybody. But the ones that they walk on, or the term walking on all fours, meant is the way you describe things crawling on the ground. Even though it technically doesn't have four legs, that term going on all fours is like our term sunrise. So all flying insects that walk on fours would be detestable to you. There are, however, some winged creatures that walk on all fours that you may eat. Those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground, of these you may eat any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, or grasshopper. But all other winged creatures that uh, have four legs you are to detest. So he gives them a subset. Again, these are certain types of insects, things that crawl on the ground, and that would include mice, rats, all that kind of stuff. Here are the ones you can eat. And the exception is you can eat these certain families of grasshopper. And Health-wise, I mean, for us, they're gross, but you go to China on a street market, and you're going to see fried grasshopper on sticks. Like, people all over the world have been eating grasshoppers and things forever. Watch Bear Grylls on Man vs. Wild. He'll eat a grasshopper as soon as he sees it, because it's full of protein and vitamins. That kind of so they'll, they'll, the ancient diet consisted of insects to a large degree. So, it's, again, it's weird for us, but it's not weird for that part of the world. And locust plagues brought in literally hundreds of tons of locusts. So that is a whole thing of food coming through that you could take if you live in a desert, arid, subsistent climate. All right? So again, we'll finish up a couple more minutes here. Um, he goes on to say, you'll make yourself unclean by these, and these is going to be what's coming next, not the previous chapter. He's, he's now going to talk back about unclean stuff, not detestable stuff. You'll make yourself unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash his clothes, and he will be unclean till evening. And here are the these that cause that. Every animal that has a split hoof not completely divided or that does not chew the cud is unclean for you. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. Of all the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up their carcass must wash his clothes and he will be unclean till evening. They are unclean for you. So this is, this is a, a, a chiasm. It's going back to how the chapter started with these land animals, these, these type of 
cattle, these type of livestock, and he's, he's, it's wrapping back up and saying, these are going to be unclean for you. And so this is going to be what happens now. So we spent half the chapter talking about this will make you unclean, avoid this, it'll be unclean. Now what does that mean? Well, it means you have to wash your clothes and you'll be considered unclean until evening. That's it. That's the big deal. You'll be unclean until evening. You wash it, what does that mean? What well, means you can't go to the sanctuary that day? You can't, you can't go into the tabernacle that day. This whole thing is all about tabernacle life and Israel's worship. So does it mean you're cut off from people of God if you touch a carcass of it? No. How did they get their skins? How did they make process the animals? It just means that there are certain things that you're going to do that are perfectly normal, but because of the type of animal that you're doing it to, because of God's classification and how he's putting this covenant in place, by doing those things, you will be rendered unclean until evening. And there's nothing wrong with those things. This isn't about eating. This is about handling. And there are things that are going to make you unclean in Israel that are perfectly normal and fine. The next chapter, the shortest chapter in Leviticus, is going to be about childbirth. Nothing is more of a sign of the covenant blessing than childbirth. Childbirth is the thing in the Old Testament before the fully realized hope of the New Testament and resurrection and all of that. Childbirth was seen as the primary means by which God blessed you as a family. It also makes you unclean until evening. Actually, longer than evening. It's a period of time. But the point is that uncleanness and moral depravity are not two things that are linked in Leviticus. They're not the same thing. So it goes on to say, of all the animals that move on the ground, um, these are unclean for you. And these would be animals that move on the ground. These are things that would continually get into and contaminate. And, you know, if, you've got, if you've ever had put out a mousetrap in your house, this is what you're dealing with. Uh, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever it's used, will be unclean, whether it's made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth. Put it in water. It will be unclean until evening, and then it will be clean. In other words, wash, wash it. If one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean and you must break the pot. You can't just wash a clay pot because it's, it's texture, things can seep into it, and if it's not glazed and fired and everything, so just break it. It's cheap. You can always make a new clay pot, so that's no problem. Uh, any food that, uh, let's see, put water. Any food that could be eaten but has water on it from such a pot is unclean. Any liquid that could be drunk from it is unclean. Anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or a cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean. You are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a cistern for collecting water remains clean. But anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. If a carcass falls onto any seeds that are to be planted, they remain clean. But if water has been put on the seed and the carcass falls on it, it's unclean for you. If an animal you're allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches the carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who eats some of the carcass must wash his clothes, he will be unclean until evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash his clothes, he will be unclean until evening. This is a clean animal, normal animal. If any of your animals, if it dies. So again, there's, there's uncleanness and it's linked with death. Death and shed blood are two things that affect the realm of Levitical purity. And they're the two things that happen regularly at the altar, in the heart of it. So, We'll wrap it up here. I'm going to pick back up about why is a spring or a cistern not considered unclean if an animal uh, dies in it. And the, the, the reason is actually pretty theological, but we are one minute over time, so I have to pick that up next week.
I uh, hope you've enjoyed our jazz festival today here at Chris Chris. <laughs> There's still plenty of food left over, so if you guys want to grab some before you leave, otherwise have a great week, and we'll see you next week.